Over the years, going through strange and unsolved wilderness crimes, I and many others have uncovered a disturbing pattern of disappearances in North America's wilderness regions that defy conventional explanations. It's hard to say just what is causing these strange disappearances. There are many inexplicable vanishings of individuals in national parks, forests, and remote areas across the continent. These disappearances share eerie similarities, victims of all ages, backgrounds, and physical abilities seemingly vanishing into thin air, often leaving no trace behind. While some cases can be attributed to rational causes, many defy logical explanations. In tonight's episode, I will be highlighting and showing several mysteries that continue to confound experts, leaving families in agonizing limbo and communities on edge. They bring to light unsettling patterns and commonalities among the missing, such as sudden disappearances near bodies of water, unusual weather phenomena, or mysterious accounts of sightings before the vanishing. Dr. James McGrogan, Booth Falls, Colorado the disappearance and subsequent death of Dr. James Jim McGrogan in Vail, Colorado in March 2014 is incredibly mysterious. While the official cause of death was ruled as an accident, several unanswered questions remain and a lot of strange energy surrounds the incident. Dr. McGrogan was an experienced hiker well prepared for the Eisman Hut hike. He had appropriate equipment, including a cell phone, GPS tracker, and warm clothing. However, he was separated from his group and decided to continue hiking alone. This decision raises questions about why he chose to venture ahead without waiting for his companions. After he left the group, he disappeared and a search operation was launched. Following Dr. James Jim McGrogan's disappearance on March 14, 2014, extensive search efforts were conducted in the area. Search and rescue teams, including helicopters from the National Guard's High Altitude Aviation Training Site, combed the terrain surrounding the hike's route. Despite the challenging conditions and terrain, searchers dedicated significant time and resources to locate McGrogan. The circumstances surrounding his body's discovery raise further puzzling elements. The fact that McRogan was found without his boots raises questions about why he would remove them in such a hazardous environment. One possibility is that he suffered from a condition known as paradoxical undressing, which can occur during severe hypothermia. Paradoxical undressing is a phenomenon in which individuals in the late stages of hypothermia may feel a sudden urge of warmth and mistakenly remove their clothing, leading to further drop in body temperature. However, it is unclear if hypothermia affected McRogan's actions or not. The discovery of his backpack with a functioning cell phone raises further puzzling aspects. It is unclear why he did not utilize his phone to call for help or use the GPS tracker to signal his location. The reasons behind his apparent lack of communication remain unknown, and it is challenging to determine if there were any technical issues or other factors influencing his decision to not use these devices. The location where McGrogan's body was found, approximately four and a half miles from the trail and in an area well known for ice falls, adds to the mystery. Head trauma, chest injuries, and a broken femur indicate that he experienced a significant fall or accident. 
However, the specific details leading up to these injuries remain elusive. Investigating McGrogan's mental and emotional well-being during this disappearance could provide further insights. Factors such as stress, personal circumstances, and or pre-existing medical conditions could shed light on his decision-making and behavior during the hike. Overall, the case of Dr. Jim McGrogan's disappearance and death in Vail, Colorado remain a perplexing and tragic event. Despite investigations, extensive search efforts, and the official ruling of an accidental death, the exact sequence of events leading to his injuries and reason for his separation from the group, the circumstances surrounding his belongings, and the absence of communication continue to be shrouded in mystery. Given the available information, it is difficult to determine precisely what happened to Dr. Jim McGrogan. It is possible that he encountered unexpected challenges or hazards during the hike, which ultimately resulted in his tragic accident. However, the exact sequence of events leading up to his injuries, peculiar circumstances surrounding his belongings, and lack of communication remain unresolved. Deming Zhu, Three Sisters Wilderness, Oregon. Deming Zhu's disappearance on November 4, 2007 in the Ololi Mountain area of the Three Sisters Wilderness in Oregon continues to perplex investigators and remains a haunting mystery. Deming, a highly respected professor of mathematics at the University of Oregon, had immigrated to the United States from China in the late 1980s. He and his wife, Shi Zhu, shared a deep love for the outdoors and often embarked on day hikes together, demonstrating their great fitness despite their older age. On that fateful day, Deming embarked on a solo hike to the Ololi Mountain, a picturesque destination within the Willamette National Forest. The weather conditions were perfect, a beautiful, sunny day with clear blue skies. Deming, clad in a simple white shirt and a light leather jacket, set off without a backpack or essential hiking equipment, and little did he know that this choice would be a critical mistake. During his ascent, Deming encountered a couple, Stephanie and Paul Niedermeyer, who were also exploring the trails together. They crossed paths near the peak of Ololi Mountain at approximately 1.30 p.m. The Niedermeyers recalled that Deming appeared restless and in a hurry. He spent only a few moments at the summit before abruptly descending. Concerned about his safety, the Niedermeyers kept an eye out for him as they returned to the trailhead. Upon reaching the trailhead parking lot, Stephanie and Paul were taken aback by the presence of a white Chevrolet Impala, a vehicle they had not noticed before. Considering the timing, they assumed it belonged to another hiker they encountered on the French Pete Trail. However, as the hours passed and Deming failed to return, their worry grew. Finally, the realization was that the car likely belonged to Deming himself. Deming's wife reported her husband missing to the authorities on November 5th, prompting an immediate search and rescue operation in the area. The search efforts focused on vast wilderness encompassing the Cougar Dam area, Ololi Mountain, Mackenzie Bridge, Cougar Reservoir, and the expansive Three Sisters Wilderness area. Over 60 mountain rescue personnel from Eugene, Portland, 
Corvallis, Lincoln, Lynn, and Deschutes counties, along with officials from the Deschutes County Sheriff's Office and Eugene Police, were mobilized. In addition, a UH-60 Black Hawk helicopter equipped with infrared FLIR technology was deployed to bolster their efforts. Despite the tireless search conducted by the dedicated teams, no significant leads or evidence regarding Deming's whereabouts were ever uncovered. The situation took a disheartening turn when inclement weather set in. Temperatures dropped, rain poured, and snow began to blanket the region. These challenging conditions further compounded the urgency of the search, as Deming was ill-prepared for the sudden change in weather. His light jacket and lack of proper winter clothing left him vulnerable in the early days of November. Days turned into weeks, and on November 12th, the official search was reluctantly called off due to the worsening weather conditions. However, friends and volunteers refused to give up hope, tirelessly scouring the dense and rugged forest in their quest to find a Ming. In a stroke of luck, on November 15th, part of William L. Sullivan's trail book was discovered in a treacherous French peat drainage area located south of Ololi Mountain. The section of the text contained information about the Ololi Mountain hike, including the specific page 154, detailing the route. The other half of the book was found in Deming's abandoned car, providing a puzzling clue about his possible way. Investigators theorized that Deming may have mistakenly taken the wrong turn at a trail junction. The strange mystery of Deming Zoo still remains unsolved, and hopefully one day we can come up with some updates to help you guys understand better what happened. Robert Winters Still missing. Robert Winters was a 78-year-old experienced hunter who went missing in 1969. He disappeared in Sparks Lake, Oregon, while hunting with his three sons, also experienced hunters. They understood weather conditions weren't ideal for the higher elevation, so they agreed to set up base camp. When it came time to split up, they each claimed a certain area near camp. Again, they agreed to stay at a lower elevation, only covering familiar territory. Though the men were separated for quite some time, they were never too far apart. A couple of hours later, each of the sons had returned to camp, but there was no sign of Robert. Initially, the brothers combed the area on foot, searching in and around where their father set up earlier that day. After nearly an hour of searching independently, they sought real help to locate their father. It was getting dark and the weather was only getting worse, so they were considerably scared. Eventually, over 60 searchers were assembled. Unfortunately, shortly after Robert went missing, the area experienced heavy snowfall and a snowstorm overtook the entire area. The only early discovery were some tracks in the snow. These tracks were at a higher elevation, traversing upwards, not in the same area or direction Robert would likely have been in. They were later determined not to be his footprints. Roughly nine months after Robert's disappearance, searchers discovered some of his belongings near the area he vanished. All of the items looked to have been carefully removed. There was no shredding, tearing, or ripping involved. No blood either. Just one singular hiking boot, a single glove, a pair of glasses, and Robert's gun. 
all near the base of a tree. In addition to the nearly perfect condition of these belongings, the fact that there was no blood, no bones, or any real signs of death, well, it was quite simply puzzling. Had Robert simply passed away from the elements? If so, they would expect to find some sort of DNA at or around the scene. Deputies Mel Newhouse and Norman Thrasher were present at the discovery and described the scene as very odd. As not one single bone or bone fragment has ever been recovered despite an extremely detailed search, Robert had just up and vanished, and the only clues left behind were an assortment of things he had on the day he disappeared. After so much time has passed and under such grueling conditions, there was no way Robert could still be alive. Though his body was never discovered, the coroner signed his death certificate in the same year they found his belongings. This meant he was now legally deceased and his family could move forward with funeral arrangements. One year later, Robert's dentures were found in the same area his clothing and gun were previously located. No new discoveries have been reported since, and Robert Winter's case remains a mystery, not only for his family and locals in the area, but also for investigators, hunters, and outdoorsmen alike. What do you think happened to Robert Winter's? David Peltier, still missing. This case also involves a missing hunter, and like Robert Winters, David Lee Peltier has never been found. On November 3rd, 2018, Lee Peltier and his three friends decided to take a brief but familiar hunting trip through Namadji State Forest in Hinkley, Minnesota. All four men were experienced outdoorsmen. They weren't dressed for nasty weather, though, as this particular hunt was meant to be a quick expedition for lunch. Lee headed towards a nearby pond with John Warner, who was a part owner of the cabin they were using. According to Peltier's daughter, John and Lee separated intentionally with plans to meet up again. John made his way to higher ground atop the bluff while Lee walked along the pond's edge to flush out any deer. The hope was to send them straight into John's awaiting sights, but things didn't go according to plan. Peltier never showed up for lunch that Saturday, but his friends assumed he was trailing a deer. They really didn't think much of it at first, but soon an hour turned into a couple of hours, then dusk, and shortly thereafter it was dark. Lee's friends were officially starting to worry. With no cell service to be found, the men built a huge bonfire outside the cabin and listened for gunshots. If a hunter is in distress, they'll shoot three shots into the air, so they were waiting to hear anything like that, which they did not. They stayed up all night waiting for him. Megan DeCourcy, one of Lee's daughters, explained in an interview shortly after he went missing. The unkind change in weather hindered the search for their friend. The rain turned to snow and the temperature had dropped below 20 degrees. With the elements working against them, it was eventually decided to continue their search on foot in the morning. At dawn, the three men went out to continue their search for Lee. Then they headed down toward town, over a half hour drive away, to call 911. That call came into dispatch at 11.24 a.m. and within less than an hour, a real search was underway for Lee Peltier. The initial search included five officers from the Pine County Sheriff's Office and the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, who searched on foot and by ATV until nightfall. The next morning, 
Friends and family from the metro area came to help search the area that the hunters were in encircles nearly 93,000 acres in Pine and Carlton counties. Search crews and investigators reported the wet and treacherous terrain, such as swamps, bogs, dense tree lines, which all made the search incredibly difficult. You have to see it to believe it. It's just one giant bog, Lee's son David said of the search area. There's some high ground in there, but not very much. It's so thick it's easy to get turned around. We had a group of 12 of us in a search party and we thought we were walking west and then we stopped and looked at the compass and we were going southeast. He continued, They typically find lost people within a half mile of their last known location, but I think it's a lot further away than they think. He was physically fit and I think he covered a lot of ground. David believes his father, who visited the same cabin the previous winter, became hypothermic due to the conditions he faced combined with the lack of protective gear he was last seen wearing. According to Lee's daughters, their father didn't have a backpack, water, or even a lighter on them. They, along with the others, speculated he could have possibly fallen into the pond he was circling, or he could have gotten turned around subsequently getting lost. In an interview towards the end of the search, the family said every time they walked out of that forest, they felt like they were leaving Lee behind. They continued to search the area and ask locals to help keep their eyes open. They know he's still out there. When investigators received cell phone records from AT&T, they showed that Lee made three phone calls at 1.40pm on November 3rd, one to each of his three fellow hunters. According to Lee's daughter, his phone hadn't died until 5.30 the next morning. She recounts that if he had somehow fallen or gone into the water on Saturday, his phone could have died long before Sunday morning. It's so hard and confusing because you think one thing makes sense and then it doesn't, she said. He's been hunting all his life. He grew up on a farm. He loved the outdoors. He would have known to fire his gun. If he were going to take cover, if he found a cave or something, he would have put a clue outside, left some sign. There has never been any recovered evidence relating to this case. No leads since the initial investigation in 2018. No DNA has ever surfaced in or around the area where he went missing. Unfortunately, as it stands today... Nobody knows for sure what happened to Lee Peltier. Danny Philippidis, missing six days. Firefighter Danny Philippidis suffered a head injury and went missing while he was on an annual ski trip with coworkers. What is especially puzzling about Danny's case isn't that he just went missing but also when and where he was found. Danny actually ended up wandering around a parking garage in Sacramento six days after he vanished from a ski resort in Lake Placid, New York. Not only were these places over 2,000 miles apart, but Danny had no recollection of how he had gotten to California in the first place. What's more, he didn't even recognize the clothes he was wearing, the items he held, or his surroundings. It was entirely foreign. For a while, Danny and his loved ones weren't sure exactly what happened to him, not literally or medically. Over time, doctors and police have been able to fill in some of the blanks, determining Danny's unusual ordeal came about as a result of a head injury sustained on that fateful trek to retrieve his cell phone. You see, it was the Toronto Fire Service's annual ski trip to Lake Placid, New York, and as it was coming to an end, Danny decided to capture some photos for their last night. 
That's when he realized he had forgotten his phone in the car. He and his friends were in the lodge about halfway up Whiteface Mountain, which meant it would be quite the ordeal to grab it. He told friends he planned to ski down to his car, and they could document the end of their trip when he returned. But this relatively simple journey turned into a mind-bending journey for the 50-year-old fire captain. A journey he will likely never fully remember. So, what does he remember? Philippidus believes the calamity began when he took a wrong turn on the way back to the car. He has no recollection of a supposed fall that knocked him out and likely caused the concussion, but remembers coming to at dusk. Danny was feeling sore and disoriented but made his way toward what he thought to be the main ski lodge. However, when he arrived, he found it was closed and deserted. Investigators later determined Danny likely fell near a children's ski slope, then worked his way to the main lodge or hub of a child's program, a sparsely populated area that would have been closed at the time. Danny's memories of what happened next are considered fragmented at best. He suspects he flagged down a truck in hopes to secure a ride off the mountain. He has a memory of climbing into a warm truck cab while still wearing his ski boots and winter clothing and being sick on the side of the road. He remembers learning that they were driving through Utah. I'd never been out that way, he told reporters. It kind of added to my confusion and feeling of not really knowing what was going on because I'm not familiar with that part of the country. He remembers the sharp impression of these particularly crushing headaches and that he experienced intense fatigue which left him unable to do much other than sleep, as he unknowingly moved further away from Lake Placid. He had hoped it was all just a bad dream, but gave way to the grim reality when after a few days on the road, the trucker informed him that they had reached the end of the line in Sacramento. To this day, Danny maintains he doesn't know the trucker's identity, and authorities have never been able to locate him. Danny found himself wandering, intent on contacting his wife, but not sure how. Miraculously, he still had the credit card he used to pay for his lift pass in Lake Placid, along with some cash. With this, he was able to purchase a cell phone, but this was not an easy task given that the fact he had no form of identification, only the card. Even after obtaining a phone, Danny couldn't immediately remember his wife's number. He ended up on the internet and that's when he realized he was the subject of a missing person investigation. The very next day, he flagged down a ride to the Sacramento airport. While there, he was finally able to recall his wife's number. His frantic family then urged him to call 911, ultimately landing him in the hospital for evaluation. I feel fortunate that I'm here talking today because of all the potential things that could have resulted, he says. Danny's inability to recall what happened and his head injury not being known about initially created room for speculation. Some suggested he planned the disappearance for exposure, but there's no real proof he actually received any positive attention for this event, and there certainly isn't any real motive. There were a lot of people who found it suspicious that Danny could only recall certain details, or that he somehow safely traveled over 2,000 miles with no understanding how. Regardless of what happened while he was missing, what we do know is that he experienced head trauma so it shouldn't be excluded as a possible explanation for why he's unable to recall what happened in that six-day period. In fact, it's probably the most likely explanation. Doctors were the ones to present this theory after performing several brain scans. They suggested his misadventures and missing time were side effects of amnesia suffered as a result of a traumatic head injury. Dr. Charles Tater, director of the Canadian Concussion Center at the Toronto Western Hospital, 
states amnesia can take place in about a quarter of all concussion cases, adding that headaches, fatigue, and nausea, and islands of memory are all classic symptoms. Most people make a complete recovery, although the amnesia will likely last forever, Tater says. He will probably forever have those blanks. Danny confirmed this as recently as 2019 and stated he is content with the fact that he will likely never remember those six days. He's also grateful because unlike so many others, he's not still missing, nor does he suffer any long-term brain damage or negative side effects. As of 2022, Danny Philippidis remains a firefighter with the Toronto Fire Department, and he considers himself very lucky. Steve Kubecki, missing 15 months. The last case we'll cover today is one of the strangest I have ever come across. It's the story of a man who vanished while skiing, only to turn up halfway across the country 15 months later with no idea how he got there. Stephen Kubecki was 23 years old when he vanished from Holland, Michigan, on February 19, 1978. At the time, he was a student at Hope College, and before disappearing, he told roommates he was going cross-country skiing along the Lake Michigan coastline to Saugatuck. Hours later, when Stephen still had not returned back, his roommates called the police. Soon, the state police and Coast Guard were using helicopters and tracking dogs to locate the student who had been missing for an undetermined amount of time. Search crews found his skis, poles, backpack, and footprints. His tracks led roughly 200 yards out into the frozen surface of Lake Michigan, then abruptly stopped. Fifteen months passed without anyone seeing or hearing from Stephen, although they were never able to determine why he removed his equipment to venture out onto the frozen lake in the first place. Local police assumed he fell through the ice and drowned, he was presumed dead, and Hope College issued his degree in absentia. The detectives who investigated his disappearance did have their doubts about the drowning theory, though. They even sent Stephen's dental records to Chicago to see if he might be among the unidentified victims of serial killer John Wayne Gacy, but those results came back negative. His family mourned him, but Stephen's parents, who are no longer alive, never believed their son was dead. Desperate to find him, they had a private investigator working on this case the entire time. Then, the unimaginable happened. On May 5, 1979, Stephen Kubecki suddenly woke up somewhere he didn't recognize. He was in a meadow, wearing someone else's clothes, and there was a nearby backpack he didn't recognize as his own. When he looked inside the backpack, he found it was full of maps. I would guess I was hitchhiking, Kubecki recalled of this initial moment. He then walked into town and looked at a newspaper, Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Then he noticed the date. He was shocked to find 15 months had passed and he was 700 miles away from where he vanished. After his reappearance, Kubecki told reporters when he first came to he had $40 in cash, new glasses, shoes, and a t-shirt from a marathon in Wisconsin. I felt like I've done a lot of running, he said in an interview after his return. His memory up to his disappearance remained intact, and he reported his last memory was of feeling cold and scared and being lost in a frozen darkness. In the bag full of maps, there was also hitchhiking signs which suggested Stephen had already traveled very widely, from Sacramento to San Francisco 
to Reno, Chicago, Utah. According to him, he had not been planning to travel to any of these places. In his initial police interview, he stated he may have been heading to his father's house, which sat about 40 miles outside of Pittsfield, Massachusetts, but he made no plans to visit him, so he couldn't be sure. Stephen has, and still claims to have, no recollection of anything that happened during his 15-month disappearance. So how, or why does he have memorabilia from marathons he cannot remember? It's sort of terrifying, but the more you read about Stephen, the more you understand that he's equally, if not more, invested in this story than anyone. It's truly a wild mystery. What's also mysterious is Stephen's response to requests for interviews since his initial reappearance. Outside of his initial police interview, he has absolutely refused to speak to the media or any sort of news outlet about the incident. Though, he did co-author a book. The title, you ask? Meta-Mathematical Foundations of Existence. Godel, Quantum, God, and Beyond. Yeah, and no, I haven't gotten around to reading it quite yet, but anyone can purchase the novel online, and there are some excerpts on his website. The book essentially lays out Quebecki's thoughts on the inconsistencies and incompleteness of our understanding of reality. Speculation by UFO enthusiasts only grew once Quebecki published the work. For many, Stephen's own assertion that our universe is at best incomplete and at worst inconsistent just further fueled their speculation that something truly extraordinary happened to him in 1978. With all the basics missing from his memory, they're really missing from history too. There's just about enough information to ensure that we can't be sure about anything. Had Stephen walked across Lake Michigan? If so, where was he headed? And why did he strip down first? How did Stephen sustain life for 15 months yet have no memory of it? Whose clothes was he wearing when he woke up? And where did those maps come from? The list of questions goes on and on, with most of them still remaining a mystery, even for Stephen. We may never know what really happened, or who else it could be happening to right now. Some people attribute the region itself to playing a part in Stephen's mysterious absence. Significantly smaller in size than the widely known Bermuda Triangle, the mystery of the Michigan Triangle could be a video all of its own. The Lake Michigan Triangle has been the site of several unexplained disasters, whether it be aerial crashes, shipwrecks, or vanishings. These events date back centuries. It seems to start with the disappearance of a Hackley and Hume lumber schooner that was making its trip home to Muskegon in 1891. This wasn't a long trip by any means, and it was quickly noticed when the ship never made it across. But where it went remained a mystery for nearly 115 years. Interestingly, this mystery has been solved for the most part, though widely ignored. Perhaps legends are sometimes more fun than facts. The 132-foot, three-masted schooner was found and identified with near certainty at the bottom of Lake Michigan's southern portion in 2005. Taras Lysenko, a diver with A&T Recovery out of Chicago, discovered the wreck in 2005 while a Lake Michigan shipwreck hunter and searcher helped identify the wreckage. Elizabeth Sherman, a maritime author and great-granddaughter of the schooner's namesake, presented the discovery at the Great Lakes Conference at the Great Lakes Naval Memorial and Museum. In addition, the discovery is a glimpse into the true power of the Great Lakes and the estimated 8,000 ships at the bottom. 
divers have even confirmed a Stonehenge-like structure underwater in Lake Michigan. A Lake Michigan Stonehenge? Quite possibly. Yeah, this is a real thing. Features are similar to those found in England, including one large one with some sort of carving or writing on it. Another strange event in the area took place in 1950 when 2501 USS Airlines crashed into Lake Michigan. It was presumed the deadliest accident in American history, yet there was never any wreckage. A severe electrical storm is supposedly what caused the plane to crash, but in addition to zero wreckage, no bodies were ever recovered. So what happened? Did the plane fly into another dimension? Who knows? This one actually remains completely unsolved. Without going too deep into the mystery surrounding the Lake Michigan Triangle, we can at least safely say it has been the site of some strange occurrences. And, even Stephen Kubecki's case is right there on top of the list. For decades, he has refused to speak about his disappearances with reporters. He has ignored any attempts to reach him, and his only known family has done the same. Their lips are sealed. Well, sort of. A newly published book by author Dylan James Quarles claims to be the untold story of Stephen Kubecki and written in partnership with Kubecki himself. I... I personally haven't read it yet. However, a few quick searches on the internet confirm that Stephen has not released anything new regarding his experience, meaning no new memories have surfaced. So, is this real or fake? Well, it wasn't fake because Stephen Kubecki actually did disappear, but there's no proof that it wasn't of his own accord, nor is there proof that it was. Some would argue that the most logical theory is that Kubecki suffered an emotional or mental health episode, one that made him disappear from society for a spell before returning when he felt like it. Stephen has always denied this theory, maintaining he did not disappear of his own accord, and confirming that he does not suffer from any mental health disorders. Today, Kubecki remains alive and well, working as a psychologist in the Pacific Northwest. He still maintains having no memory of those 15 months he was missing. Robert Springfield First, I want to tell you about Robert Bugsy Springfield. He went missing on September 19, 2004, in the Bighorn Mountains. He was 48 then, and wasn't the type of person you'd expect to get lost. Robert was Native American, and his family belonged to the Crow Nation Indian Reservation in Montana. Though he was born in Casper, Wyoming, a town almost three hours away, he spent much of his time in the mountains learning to hunt and live off the land. In high school, he was intelligent, popular, and athletic. He played football and basketball and even continued playing basketball for the Marines after enlisting at 17. A video by Storytelling Imperfectly stated he made it to the Special Forces, which wouldn't surprise me in the least, but there wasn't much information about his military career other than his honorable discharge in 1977. I can tell you he was well-traveled and spent a lot of time in Australia, Japan, and the Philippines, but that's about it. After his discharge, Robert enrolled at Billings Vocational Technical School and graduated in 1979. A few months later, he married his wife, Veronica, and they moved to Lodgegrass, Montana, where Robert had attended high school. Don't let these different town names confuse you, either. This takes place in a single area near the Montana-Wyoming border, within a few hours of each other. The couple would go on to have two sons. Colton was their biological son and Brent was adopted, but they were loved and treated equally. Robert seemed to be an all-around good guy. Nothing was more important than his family, 
and people had great things to say about him. If he had enemies, no one could name them. Because Robert belonged to the Crow Nation, he had permission to hunt on their land, a privilege not many enjoy. He often took his sons there so they could hunt the same things he had growing up. This was an area they were intimately familiar with, and not some random patch of woods they up and decided to explore. September 19th, 2004, was a clear, windy day with mild temperatures, and Robert took his sons to Black Canyon in the Bighorn Mountains. At the time, Colton was 13 years old, and while I am not sure about Brent, I believe they are close in age. The trip into the mountains went smoothly, and the next day began like any other. They agreed to separate for the boys to drive elk into the canyon, where their father would be waiting. So, Robert ventured off in the heavy woods with only a bow and some arrows for protection while his sons went their way. Both boys returned without issue that afternoon, but their father was nowhere to be seen. They waited for hours, sometimes honking the truck horn in hopes of getting his attention, but they were sure he would arrive at any moment. The idea he could be lost was simply unthinkable, but they contacted the Bighorn County Sheriff's Office and tribe members once it got dark. Soon, the mountains were swarming with infrared helicopters, dogs, and trackers on foot, and even horseback, but nothing was found. There was no sign of Robert or his gear. The search continued for weeks without any progress, and they were forced to call it off when the bad weather set in. The FBI believed foul play to be involved, but without evidence, they were powerless to act. Even though the official search was over, his family continued looking for several more weeks, but sadly, they too would be forced to accept the inevitable. A whole year passed without new information until October 2005, when a random hunter would be in the same area while trekking through a particularly dense section of forest. He heard what he thought was a woman's scream, but quickly realized it was a crow. At first, the hunter ignored it, but eventually the shrieking piqued the man's curiosity. He followed the sound to a clearing where he saw a tree that seemed to have been snapped in half by a storm. The crow was sitting on the broken stump, and the hunter claimed it stopped squawking when they made eye contact. He goes on to say the bird stared at him for a moment before looking down to the fallen tree, and this caused the hunter to look in that direction. That's when he found Robert. At the base of the fallen tree were a few bones, a partial skull, a pair of boots, a rolled up belt, and a folded jacket. His wallet still contained cash, his ID, and even his social security card, but they weren't weather damaged. Now terrified, the hunter fled the area to alert authorities. He led the sheriff back to the site, which would only be 50 yards from where Robert and his sons had made their base camp the previous year. This was not unsearched territory. All the evidence was carefully collected for testing, and considering how the items were laid out, foul play was immediately suspected. DNA confirmed the remains belonged to Robert Springfield, and for a short time, the FBI believed he might have been shot, but ultimately they announced the fallen tree crushed him. This conclusion did not go over well, and to even add more insult to injury, the FBI would not release the victim's body. The family was forced to sue to give Robert a proper burial. There are many issues with the falling tree theory. Let's imagine this play out. The man is down in the canyon, waiting for his sons to send the elk his way, when suddenly the tree falls. 
Why were his belt and other items removed if they killed him instantly? If it pinned him to the ground in a way, he was able to remove them, for whatever reason, why didn't he scream for help? Falling trees can be loud, but his sons never heard a thing, and they weren't that far away. Plus, neither scenario answers why he would be separated from his weapon. The jacket could have been removed for several reasons, but the belt and boots, not so much. We could poke holes in the tree theory all day, but what actually happened? One could argue that most of his bones were taken by wildlife, but it feels like quite a stretch to say the rest of his clothes deteriorated to nothing in only a year, even exposed to the elements. Even today, this case remains a complete mystery. No one can think of a scenario that answers each question. Robert's wife wonders if he was murdered and if his body was only disposed of after the search. But that couldn't be proven either. His death certificate was finally released on November 16, 2007, and the cause of death was listed as undetermined. While most 411 cases have a prevailing theory or two, I couldn't find many for this one. When body parts are found in previously searched areas, it tends to put a kink in the usual guesswork. Some believe the crow was Robert's spirit, trying to lead the hunter to his remains. But that's about it. Though, if these things were easy to figure... Though, if these things were easy to figure out, we probably wouldn't be talking about them. What about you guys? Do you have any ideas? Because I would love to hear them in the comments. Tom Messick The following case is about a hunter named Tom Messick from Troy, New York. He was an 82-year-old veteran on a hunting trip with his family, and a YouTube channel called The Lore Lodge did a pretty good documentary on it if you want to check them out later. They are friends of the channel as well, so I'd highly recommend it. At his advanced age, Tom was half-blind, half-deaf, and barely mobile. He could get around at home, but a hike through the woods pushed his limit to the extreme. Why was he out there, you ask? Well, family tradition. They went every single year. This year, they wanted to try a new spot and traveled to Lily Pond Road in Brant Lake, New York. It's about two miles from the main road, so it was isolated, but they weren't exactly in the middle of nowhere. There are houses all over the lake. People live in the area. It was already 10 a.m. when they began hunting, and much like the Springfields from our first case, these guys split up into two groups. There were three other elderly gentlemen besides Tom, and they spread out in a line roughly a hundred yards apart while the three younger, more fit members of the group hiked around a large hill with the intent of chasing deer to their doom. Tom and the others could not see one another, but everyone was able to communicate over walkie-talkies. One notable thing that the family and friends would later recall is that the forest was silent from when they arrived to when they left. No one heard any birds, squirrels, or insects. Being experienced hunters, the party recognized this was a warning sign. But since there were seven of them and no grizzly bears in the area, they weren't overly concerned. Aside from that detail, everything seemed completely normal as the afternoon progressed, but they never saw a single deer. By 3 p.m., they were ready to call it quits and head back to the campsite, which was only two miles away from Brant Lake. Everyone immediately agreed and made their way back, but Tom didn't return. Assuming he didn't hear his walkie-talkie, they walked to where he had been hunting, but there was no sign of him or his gear. At one point, a few of the party members said they heard something they couldn't quite identify. 
One said it sounded like a car door being slammed, but that theory is widely discredited. There is only a tiny dirt road leading to their location, and if a vehicle had approached, it would have been heard by everyone, as would a scream or a gunshot. One of the reasons I enjoyed the Lore Lodge documentary was because those guys drove to this area and one walked a hundred yards into the forest while the other stayed behind. When the first one yelled for help, he was easily heard. It's hard to imagine someone, or something, could sneak up on Tom without anyone else hearing this encounter. By 4.30, the forest rangers began the official search, and at 7, when it started to grow dark, half of the group stayed and continued looking for Tom. In contrast, the other half returned to alert his family and file a report with the authorities. The search began the next day, with 13 search and rescue professionals from the park service, and over the following weeks that number would rise to more than 300 from 15 agencies. Even with the assistance of divers, dogs, and helicopters, not so much as Tom's walkie-talkie was ever found. Theories began to run wild, but nothing seemed to answer every loose end. How could Tom have just wandered off if the man could barely get around? By all accounts, Tom was an experienced survivalist. His wife, Beverly, feared foul play more than anything. She was positive he wouldn't have wandered off, but even if he had, she was equally sure he would have left clues behind. He knew several things to do in such a scenario. They would have found cloth-tied strips around trees and other signs. The FBI becoming involved on the fourth day was considered unusual, since they usually don't investigate these kinds of missing cases unless it happens on federal land. They told Beverly something was not right with the case, but they weren't sure what, and to this day they have never given further elaboration. If wildlife had played a part, his possessions would have been left behind and it's very hard to imagine a struggle took place, and unnoticed, unless most of all of the hunting party was in on the conspiracy. Which, if they were, six people keeping a secret this big for this long under such scrutiny is somewhat unbelievable itself. According to one local man interviewed in the Lore Lodge documentary, there are rumors that Tom had a brother disappear in the same forest under suspiciously similar circumstances. If that is indeed true, both men could very well be in the Bahamas as we speak, but I wasn't able to find further claims of miss but I wasn't able to find any further claims of a missing brother beyond this documentary, so I'll let you make of that what you will. Some don't believe Tom was ever in the woods, considering not one piece of evidence was left behind to place him there. But again, I find it challenging to believe six people would hold a one lie together for this long. Given the lack of logical explanations, one can only wonder if something unnatural may have occurred. With Tom's body never being found and his possessions missing, the alternate universe theory is prevalent in this case. Thanks to Marvel, you're probably all familiar with the multiverse theory, and this is essentially the same thing. This is the belief that there's another world close to ours but different in minor yet critical ways, and sometimes it's possible for people to accidentally cross over into said universe. The Mandela effect also operates under this theory. If you think Nelson Mandela died in prison, or the Berenstain Bears have a different name, I suggest you Google that one later. The point is, the case of Tom Messick looks very much like a man who vanished into thin air. Is it possible someone is lying, and we don't know the true story? Absolutely, but given what we have, I don't know what to say. It's a tough one.
Kurt Newton. Before we discuss other 411 theories, let's talk about the last case. It's the hardest. This isn't a grown man who decided to go on a hunting trip. This is a helpless four-year-old little boy named Kurt. It takes place on August 31st, 1975, when Ronald and Jill Newton took their two children camping over Labor Day weekend. The family lived in Manchester, Maine, and traveled to Natanis Point Campground, the chain of Ponds Township, only a few miles away from the Maine-Quebec border. It rained a lot over the weekend, but the family didn't let that bother them. They were having a wonderful time. Three other families were also camping in the area. They weren't the only ones out there. No one can be certain of which of the two witnesses were the last one to see Kurt, but sightings occurred between 10 and 11 on Sunday morning. Jill was washing his muddy shoes while Ronald collected firewood and six-year-old Kimberly played. A neighboring camper claims to have seen the boy riding his tricycle, calling for his father, and an 11-year-old child named Lou Ellen also saw him riding the trike. She asked him where his parents were, but Kurt didn't respond. Less than an hour later, Mr. Hansen, a volunteer caretaker, and Llewellyn's father discovered the small bike on a steep rise at a dump site just under a mile away. The bike wasn't damaged, and since Kurt had yet to be reported as missing, the discovery didn't raise any alarms. While this was taking place, Jill was beginning to worry. In a later interview, she said she had gone only 10 minutes when she hung Kurt's sneakers over a line and realized his tricycle was missing. At first, she thought he followed the men to collect firewood, but they returned without him. That's when she met up with Mr. Hansen and learned Kurt's bike was found at the dump site. She knew someone had taken him. Kurt had always been terrified of traveling into the forest. Kimberly loved to explore the woods behind their home in Manchester, and she often teased her brother for standing at the edge of the lawn, too frightened to venture further. They raced to the dump site, and sure enough, there was Kurt's trike, but the child was nowhere to be found. The campground owner reported Kurt missing at 12.22 that afternoon, and the most extensive search in Maine's history began. Thousands of volunteers participated. They covered a five-mile radius of the campsite. Every road and trail were searched multiple times along with the dump site and its surrounding area, but even with helicopters and bloodhounds, there wasn't much to find. Given the muddy conditions, they expected to find the boy's footprints, but that didn't work out either. On the 31st, just before nightfall, Jill thought she heard the voice of a child in the woods near the dump, and she called out to Kurt for 15 minutes but never received an answer. Of course, there's no way to know if she just imagined it, but under the circumstances, it feels unlikely. So many resources were focused on that specific area, including the dogs, it's hard to believe he wouldn't have been found. Temperatures fell below freezing that night, and knowing the boy couldn't survive without shelter, Ronald and friends continued calling for him through sunrise without success. On that second day, dogs caught a brief scent of Kurt's pajamas, but nothing more. Unfortunately, things would only get harder for the Newton family when Ronald fell into a deep gully and hurt his ankle during the search. It turned purple and swelled up to twice its size, but he still refused to quit. After ignoring the doctor's order to rest, friends became desperate for his well-being and drugged his coffee with tranquilizers. On his fourth night without sleep, Ronald finally passed out with a loudspeaker still pressed to his lips. Many described him as the most formidable man they knew and were simply in awe of his determination. 
No stone was left unturned. Holes large enough for a child to crawl in were dug up. The ice house next to the camping office was dismantled, and the dump was bulldozed. But still, they had nothing. The search was officially called off September 12th. While interviewing every camper, one woman claimed to have seen a white station wagon at the campground shortly before Kurt went missing. It drove away so fast it left a cloud of dust behind. No cars matching the description had been registered at the park, and no other witnesses had seen them. At the time, investigators hadn't suspected foul play. They thought the child wandered off and got lost, but Kurt's parents believed he had been abducted and possibly taken into Canada. The family remained for two more weeks before returning home to Manchester without their son. Two years later, when Kurt was old enough to start school, the Newtons mailed missing posters to every school district in the country, a process that took over six months and cost over $5,000. While some schools responded with pictures of children resembling Kurt, they still couldn't find him. The list of possible sightings recorded is nearly endless, and though each one was investigated, Kurt was never found. In 2017, this case came back into the limelight when a woman claimed to be Jennifer Klein, a child who went missing in Utah when she was three years old in 1974. She said she was abducted by a satanic cult, who also was responsible for Kurt and another missing child. But obviously, this turned out to But obviously, this turned out to be a hoax. So I ask you, what the hell happened to this kid? If wildlife were involved, there would have been traces of blood and other obvious signs. Did he wander into a different dimension? Did someone snatch him and speed away? Considering this happened so close to the Canadian border, some question of a Wendigo could be involved. Wendigos are often mistaken for werewolves, but their hunger is insatiable, and they are always looking for their next meal. Though I fail to see how the tricycle would find its way to the dump, it could explain why Jill believed her son was in the woods that day. Wendigos are thought to mimic human voices to lure their prey into an isolated area, similar to skimwalkers. Now, we are in no way saying that a Wendigo is involved here, but this is one of the popular theories that we have found online. Mount Mycin For our final case, we are going to switch things up a bit and leave off on a happy ending. This one takes us to Mount Mycin in Tenkawa, a village in the Nara Prefecture, at over 1,600 feet above sea level. Mount Mycin is the highest peak of Miyajima Island. There are a number of Buddhist structures near the summit, along with a spectacular view of the Seto Inland, along with a spectacular view of the Seto Inland Sea and Hiroshima City. Last August, two unnamed elderly women became lost in the fog on Mount Mycin. The 61-year-old was from Nagoya, and the 69-year-old was from Echinomiya. Luckily, the women had submitted a climbing notification to Tenkawa Village before beginning their hike. Always, always tell people where you're going, folks. It saves lives. Nobody plans to get lost. Things just happen. But don't be that person, okay? Sources state that the women began their journey at noon on August 4th and stayed at the lodge for the first night. The next morning, they left at 8 with intentions of being back in the village guesthouse that night. Thankfully, when the women missed their reservation, the proprietor alerted authorities. Police and the fire department launched their search on August 6th, 
and their efforts continued for five full days without success before the search was officially cancelled. Any hopes of finding the women alive were long gone by the evening of August 13th, but that's when the police received a shocking call. At 6.30, one of the women reached out for help. She was alone on a mountain ridge, having left her friend behind in a desperate attempt to hike back to the village. Luckily, she found reception first. Authorities were able to pinpoint her location with GPS, and on that morning of August 14th, 12 hours after the phone call, she was found over three and a half miles south of Tenkawa Village. Three hours later, the other woman was also found and rescued nearby. In an interview, the Nagoya woman stated that they were on their way down the mountain when they became lost in a thick fog. They happened upon a structure with a roof where they took shelter and built a fire. They were able to stay hydrated with water from a nearby stream, and they rationed their snack foods as well as they could. But their food supply inevitably ran low. That's why she resumed walking on the morning of August 13th while her friend stayed behind due to exhaustion. She knew that they would both die slow, painful deaths if she did not find a way to call out for help. Relying on her phone's compass and a downloaded map, she had started heading north in the direction of Tenkawa Village. When she was finally able to dial emergency services, her battery was on 20%. The interview ends with a quote from the woman stating, I feel bad about causing trouble to a lot of people. I should have had the courage to turn back along the way. The important thing is, is that both women survived and with only minor cuts and scrapes. When you hear two elderly women were stranded in the wilderness for 10 days, you expect a fairly tragic ending. Well, I guess that does it for this case too. Are you ready for a bonus topic though? Because we have a little bit more to talk about. Thanks for listening to these creepy and downright strange missing 411 horror stories. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to slap that like button as it helps me out a ton. The more likes this episode gets, the more YouTube promotes it, and that's incredibly helpful. If you're new to the swamp, why not join us? Be sure to hit that subscribe button, and make sure your notifications are on because I upload nearly every single day, and all things natural and supernatural. If you enjoyed these cases, definitely let me know which one was your favorite, and recommend some more cases in the Missing 411 theme for me to check out. I'd love to do more videos like this. If you're on the go but don't have YouTube Premium and still want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free from Spotify, Apple Podcast, Stitcher Radio, and just about everywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. If you're listening on those platforms, be sure to give us a 5-star rating over there as it helps us grow on those platforms and it's very, very much appreciated.